Hi, today I'm talking with Gary Shiru. He is a PhD candidate and an author, as well as a podcaster for the French History Podcast. In this podcast, I talk to scholars, students, academics, authors, amateurs, podcasters, and so many more. I love hearing them talk about their topic because their passion really shows. As you know, not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now we dive into some French history, eh? Today I'm talking with Gary Chirou, and he is a podcaster, so this is exciting. I love talking to podcasters, and actually I'll let him present his topic. So can you share with us what your topic is today? Well, today we are going to be talking about French women during the revolution of 1789. So often we talk about the male political figures and the various rise and fall of the intellectuals there, either by the guillotine or eventually the ascendancy of Napoleon, which ended the entire French Revolution experiment. But women were incredibly active from the very beginning, and so we are going to shed some light on these hidden figures in history. Perfect. Thank you. And thank you for being here. I'm really happy you're here. So how did you get interested in this topic? What has brought you to this point? Well, I think everyone is interested in the French Revolution, or everyone should be. So I, as someone who is getting a PhD in French and British history, I have extensively studied the French Revolution, and when you study it, you learn about many different things involved in it, because I think most people, they just look at the political figures. But when you do your PhD, you essentially have to learn about the business side and individual neighborhoods and the legal aspect, and women and gender come along with it. And I think that that is far more interesting than quite a lot of other aspects of the French Revolution. Perfect, thank you. And for those who might not be aware, what was the French Revolution? What time period are we talking about? And what happened in a you know small nutshell? <laughs> well, if you don't know what the French Revolution is, um, no, uh, it was one of the most important revolutions up to that point. It really was, many people consider the big revolution until the Russian Revolution. 1789, the Ancien Regime, the old order in France, was coming under a lot of pressure. Its economy was really struggling. Its political leaders were largely discredited in the eyes of the people. And in order to manage the economy, Louis XVI uh, couldn't rule just by decree. He had to call the Estates General, which was this large gathering of people from across France, from different social orders. And 
Long story short, because it is a pretty complex thing, and I've talked about it on other podcasts as well, long story short is that the middle class ended up supplanting the old aristocracy. And this had a pretty monumentous effect on Europe, which with a handful of exceptions, there were very few free democracies in Europe. It was mostly monarchies, um, aside from the Dutch Republic, it was pretty much exclusively uh, monarchies within Europe. And so the French Revolution, because France was one of the great powers of Europe, this was a really huge shift in European history. That's a very succinct way of putting it because I know it's quite complex as a topic. So thank you. Um, so you said you wanted to talk about women during the French Revolution. So where did you want to start? What's your starting point for your talk today? Uh, maybe the beginning. Um, I think that we have to set the stage a little bit and put ourselves in the mindset of both women and men and how they viewed women. Before the French Revolution, women traditionally had no political rights as women were expected to submit to their husbands or their father as part of a natural order ordained by the Bible. But that doesn't mean that everyone accepted it. After all, uh, Denis Diderot's uh, Encyclopédie criticized women's traditional roles. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in his treatise, uh, Emilie, or on education, uh, criticized denying women education, although he did conclude that men and women occupied separate roles, which was widely criticized by feminists. So there was, during the Age of the Enlightenment, quite a few writers who, even if they didn't come out for full women's rights, they did think that women were more capable of being involved in worldly activities beyond just the hearth and home than they were at the time. So that sort of sets the stage. Then the revolution actually gets going. And as I mentioned before, from the very beginning, women had a important role on the revolution. They had in a particularly pivotal role in uh, the, on the 5th of October, 1789, with the Women's March on Versailles, one of the huge events that changed the revolution, on the morning of the 5th of October, 1789, uh, women were demonstrating over the price of bread in Paris, where they mixed with male revolutionary agitators who had already been advocating marching on Versailles, and they ransacked the city armory for weapons and marched the nearby palace of Versailles, where the crowd essentially forced Louis XVI to move to Paris, where he was under the watch of the people of Paris, effectively gutting his power. Even uh, before this and after this, women were involved in social clubs, and they, host they importantly hosted the salons, which was where intellectuals and thinkers would gather to talk about political ideology. And so women really did help to midwife the revolution in a lot of ways by running salons and by 
either being writers themselves or supporting Enlightenment writers. But when they actually tried to get rights for themselves, that's when they were essentially rebuffed. Um, famously, on, uh, famously in September 1791, Olympe de Gouges published the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen, which criticized the revolution's lack of action on women's rights and was a counterpoint to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. Um, this was widely criticized because even though there was a small urban intelligentsia that was becoming more woke, let's use a, a completely modern term, on women's rights, most French people were Catholic peasants. They, the revolution uh, that was occurring in the cities was not quite the same as what was happening in the daily lives of most French people. And so this caused a huge scandal and this and later criticism of the government actually meant that uh, Olympe de Gouges was guillotined on uh, the 3rd of November, 1793. And there are other incidences that we can talk about, but essentially, even though women had such an important role in promoting the revolution, when they tried to acquire power or authority for themselves, this was met by opposition from the male revolutionaries. So I have a bit of a side question. You mentioned the salons and the intellectuals that were there. Were the women talking to the intellectuals that were there or were they just hosting and kind of overhearing? Did they have involvement in it is essentially what I'm asking. They did have some involvement with it. There are some women that chose to be more standoffish, like uh, Madame Roland, uh, another famous uh, woman activist during the French Revolution who was also guillotined, in fact, five days after uh, Olympe de Gouges. She was, she liked to host salons and bring intellectuals together, though she was not always, uh, I guess you could say, pursuant in her political ideology. But then there were other women who were more persistent, but in the salons, essentially women were expected to be the hosts of men rather than actually advocating their own point. But having said that, women still managed to exert influence with it. And as the revolution dragged on, uh, Roland herself became quite combative, particularly with uh, Danton and Robespierre. So there was some space for women to assert themselves. That sounds like a good opportunity for some women when they want to be involved. It's certainly a chance to be heard, but a lot of women wanted more than just being heard they wanted to actually have influence over the writing of laws themselves and in voting on those laws. One of the most important points of the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Citizen was that if the law was to be exercised on women, then they must have the right to help write the law and to vote on said laws. And so the Salon was seen by many women as something that should be a stepping stone to later power, not just 
a endpoint in and of itself. So the women were not necessarily on equal ground as the men. Did they do anything to try to get there eventually? Well, there was the advocacy by Olympe de Gouges, uh, and not just uh, her, but there were, I guess you could, again, using a modern term, which is uh, male allies. Uh, so, for example, there was Nicolas de Condorcet, who argued for women's rights in 1790 and became infamous for that because that was incredibly controversial at the time. One French woman, Pauline Léon, on the 6th of March, 1792, addressed the Legislative Assembly on behalf of Parisian women and suggested that a female militia be formed so that women could protect their homes from counter-revolutionary assaults. This was denied and women were not allowed to have pikes and muskets and other weapons that men had. I guess they wouldn't be using muskets. I don't know. I'm not a military historian. <laughs> but either way, whether it was in the form of political representation or martial representation, there were a number of women who argued that they should be involved, and yet they were denied this. Women could essentially exercise their power in two legitimate ways. One was the being involved in different social clubs, which were open to them. Women could join social clubs and they could advocate, they could write political treatises, and they could appeal for changes to laws. That is until the 30th of October, 1793, in which the Jacobins dissolved the Society of Revolutionary Republican Women and outlawed all women's clubs and associations. This was in response to a lot of women being part of the Girondins, especially uh, Charlotte Corday, who assassinated Jean-Paul Marat a couple months before that. But before 1793, which was a huge death knell for women's rights, women could be involved in political clubs. Another thing is that they could be involved with pro-Republican mobs, either as attacking counter-revolutionaries or extolling the patriotism of the Republic. So those were two ways that women could be involved legitimately, at least according to the government in power at the time. I did hint at one way that they could be involved that was considered illegitimate, which was through uncondoned violence, as in the case of Charlotte Corday and the assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, which was also a pivotal moment in the revolution. So with the word revolution, we definitely think of perhaps the more negative aspects, whereas you're presenting a lot of positive aspects too of women trying to further the cause or whatnot. I think it's interesting when we think about revolution because so often when a revolution occurs, it is the breakdown of the preceding society and what comes after is never determined. Those who are making society are dealing with everyday problems and going from there. When the revolution broke out, there was a fair number of enthusiasm from a small section of 
feminist thinkers at the time, and they genuinely believed that they could achieve at least some measure of women's rights. Not that all of them fought for sheer equality. In the case of Madame Roland, she actually didn't think that women would have or should have full political rights, although she thought that they should be educated. Same thing with um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who preceded the revolution, that women should be educated but confined to the domestic sphere. But those thinkers underestimated the backlash both from the country at large, but also from the male thinkers who were also mostly opposed to women's rights. I think it's interesting looking at the development of women's rights during the revolution because there are important parallels but also important differences with that of other minority groups like Jews, people of color, and Protestants. So one interesting parallel was the back and forth over the rights of Africans because France both was enraptured with an idea of freedom and that people should be treated equally and free from slavery. But then on the other hand, Saint-Domingue, what we call Haiti, was the most profitable part of the empire. And so slavery was banned, reinstated. There was a lot of mixed messaging and I think a lot of initial hopes for those who wanted to have a colorblind society were dashed by the real politic that was taking place. Same thing with women, in that women did seem to at least make some progress to begin with, but these were not only dashed, but as time progressed, there was this increasing suspicion of women because women were likely to be more religious and more involved in the church because this was one way that women could get power. Women were denied a lot of political and business venues and so women were often very involved in the church which the French revolutionaries saw as this backward institution that supported the monarchy and which was one reason why they denied rights to women and is something that actually reoccurred with the French Third Republic, that a lot of Republicans who were nominally feminist and wanted women to have equal rights didn't support them getting the vote because they feared that they would vote with the monarchists. So there are some parallels with other groups that were disenfranchised and that were facing oppression. But then there are some unique differences. I think it's interesting because there were a fair number of thinkers at the time who didn't think that women were oppressed like Jews, Protestants, and people of color because the men in those groups were legally considered different. Whereas in the case of women, here, people looked at women who were considered legally different, but they figured that they were occupying a different space in society, and so therefore it wasn't discrimination. This was just a different set of rules for a different group of people. 
So it's uh, very interesting to see the rationale that went into both promoting women's rights and denying women's rights. So you're essentially giving the idea of men's roles and women's roles being really different during this time. So can you give some examples of what we might consider? So essentially, they wouldn't necessarily use this terminology at the time, but it would be divided between the public sphere and the domestic sphere, that men would be in the public sphere, they would be involved in politics and business and other public ventures, whereas women were expected to be in the home, taking care of the children, managing the house, things like that. The ideal of what a French woman should be was always in flux. With what's interesting during the French Revolution, especially during the early part, is the representation of France and different ideals with women, which is pretty ironic considering that women were being denied rights. But the idealization, the personification of both France and the personification of reason, which became a domineering intellectual idea to the point where the French revolutionaries actually made the religion of reason, sometimes mistranslated as the cult of reason, where they tried to replace Catholicism with a belief in reason. And the, uh, the idealization of reason was a woman which is pretty interesting because the same people who are promoting that are also saying that women are too irrational to be involved in politics, but whatever. There are a lot of contradictions. So in any case, the idea that many French revolutionaries had, the more regressive ones, was that a woman as an ideal should not be in the streets wearing the tricolor cockade and should not be getting involved, but instead that they should be what are known as Republican mothers. These are women who educate their children, namely their sons, to love the Republic, to love freedom, and to extol the virtues of this new society because otherwise those children might be taken in by the church or other regressive institutions which would fight against it. So the idea of Republican motherhood became a very powerful concept that would remain important 150 years later. You've already mentioned a few women leaders. Do you have examples of other types of women leaders and how or what they've done during this time? Let's see. So we talked about Olympe de Gouges. We talked about Madame Roland, who was a leader, although wasn't necessarily the most uh, heroic leader. I suppose it depends on one's point of view. One feminist who I really have a, a lot of respect for was uh, Germaine de Stahl, full name, uh, Anne-Louise Germaine de Stahl-Holstein, who was actually uh, French-Swiss. And she was a writer who 
supported women's rights, but she very wisely realized that the revolution was getting dangerous in 1791, and she retreated from politics for a time, which was good because she managed to keep her head long enough to criticize Napoleon once he came to power. Um, she understood early on, more than most people, that he was looking to make himself an emperor. I think one very interesting figure is Claire Lacombe. She stormed the Tuileries Palace on the 10th of August, 1792. Of course, she wasn't alone. But she was part of the famous group that stormed the Tuileries, that captured Louis XVI, and that led to the end of the Ancien Regime as a republic was declared. The mob that attacked, and by the way, it wasn't just uh, her, there were actually many women along with the male revolutionaries. The mob attacked the guards at the Tuileries, and she was shot through the arm but kept fighting, which earned her the nickname Hero, uh, which earned her the nickname Heroine of August 10th, and she was awarded a civic crown for her service. She later became part of the Society of Revolutionary Republican Women, which was a short-lived society that advocated for women's rights, but because it was affiliated with the Girondins, it was later persecuted under the uh, Montagnard. Um, during that time, she fought counter-revolutionaries in the streets, but because of her involvement with the Girondins, she was arrested on the 30th of October, 1793, then again in 1794, and she eventually gave up agitation. So I think that there's a really remarkable difference between all these different female leaders, because on the one hand, you have people like Olympe de Gouges, who was a writer, same thing with Sherman de Stahl. There was Madame Roland, who was an organizational leader. She headed an important salon, and at the same time, she became very important in government when her husband became the Minister of the Interior. She had control over ministerial letters, memorandums, speeches. She was involved in political appointments, and she was actually put in charge of a bureau to influence public opinion. And so she actually exercised a lot of direct power. And then, of course, you have women like Claire Lacombe, who is literally beating people up in the streets, and she wasn't alone. And then, of course, I mean, who can forget uh, Charlotte uh, Corday, who assassinated Marat, something which I might as well mention since we keep going back and forth around it. But um, Charlotte Corday was involved from the Charlotte Corday was involved in the French Revolution from the very beginning, but as it took a more radical and violent turn, she became very opposed to what was happening. She particularly became radicalized after the September massacres in 1792, which saw over 1,000 in 1792, which saw over 1,000 prisoners killed, 
which was half the prison population in Paris. She figured that the Montagnards were going way off the deep end, and so she decided that she was going to have uh, Jean-Paul Marat killed. She, on July 13th, which is also my birthday, 1793, but not that, she went to Marat's house and claimed to have secret information on counter-revolutionaries in Normandy, Marat's wife didn't want to let her in, but Marat insisted that she come, and Corday uh, entered into his bathroom where he was bathing due to a recurrent skin condition, and after speaking for a while, she pulled out a knife and stabbed him, and he died in the bathtub, of which there's a very famous painting of. So there's quite a few very different kinds of women leaders, and each of them, I think, represents a different aspect of how women tried to engage with the revolution. That's very interesting. It seems like there's some pretty strong figures. Some are negative portrayals, I guess, because they had, um, maybe they made the wrong choices, but nevertheless, I mean, they're very interesting figures for sure. I wonder if we're looking at the reverse of that, were there some women who didn't want to be involved in all of this? Absolutely. There was quite a backlash from conservative, particularly religious women, who did not like what they viewed as the domestic sphere breaking down, chaos, the subversion of the natural order, both in women becoming more active, but also in the removal of the monarchy, the aristocracy, and the different legal restrictions placed upon the clergy because the clergy became subordinate to the government. So there was quite a backlash. One thing, though, is that we don't know as much about these individual figures specifically because these women who opposed women's rights are obviously not going to be leading figures themselves. They are going to be arguing for men to support uh, more conservative measures. So we know more about the men that fought against the revolution than the women but there were quite a few women that were involved against it, both from the top to the bottom, because what we need to keep in mind is that when the counter-revolution began, there was pretty much always women involved, whether it was riots against the government or whether it was uh, even armed insurrection. One important event was the 20th to the 23rd of May, 1795, wherein a massive bread riot occurred. A large crowd of women and men armed with guns, pikes, and swords rushed into the meeting place of the National Convention and chased the deputies from their benches. They killed one and cut off his head. As soon as the government gained control of the situation, it arrested many rioters, prohibited women from entering the galleries of its meeting place and from attending any kind of political assembly or even gathering in groups of more than five in the street. So this was, as far as I can tell, the last major event 
that women had a hand in during the revolution. And this was an armed revolt against the government. Whether we consider this to be something that was a feminist action, because here you have women taking control against a what is by now a conservative government, or whether we consider this a conservative action, because here you have people who are fighting against a Republican, at least in name, government, and many of them almost certainly supported uh, a return to some sort of stabilizing government, even if that was a monarchy, we can never know, especially because we really don't know what most of the individual lower class were thinking. But clearly, as the revolution dragged on, the idea of women gaining more rights really died off, and it really became a question of can this government last because essentially no government after 1793 was pushing for women to have a large expansion of rights. And have you come across any um, interesting controversies perhaps linked to women and their roles um, in the revolution? I think the major controversy among historians is whether or not the revolution was a positive or negative for women's rights. It's hard to say because the preceding government and the preceding society regarded women as being entirely subordinate to their husbands. And so some women have argued, some, I should say, female historians have argued that the French Revolution was a step forward for women because even though they did not gain full political rights, they gained a new identity as someone that was important in the government itself, even if it was in a more passive role. Because here, with the idea of Republican motherhood, women were expected to be educated and were expected to extol the virtues of society onto their children. And so some historians have argued that by having women be part of society in that manner, that that was actually a positive and saw women's rights move forward. Other women have argued, other feminist historians have argued that it was actually a significant step back because this was a reformulation of the natural order, but in a much more concrete developed way wherein women were regarded as being biologically determined to have a less significant role. Um, I mentioned how earlier looking at women's rights and the rights of minorities, particularly uh, people of color, particularly Africans, had some similarities and some similar trends at the beginning of the revolution. I think the looking at the development of feminism and racism in the late 18th and then into the 19th centuries has a lot of parallels as well, because the argument moves from women as being 
chosen by God to be in the domestic sphere to being biologically inferior. Same thing happens with people of color with the advent of scientific racism and the idea that they have a different role, they being people of color, than the white man because of biological determinants. And so because of that, there are some women historians who argue that the focus on biology and the restructuring of society as saying women are biologically different, biologically inferior, was actually a huge step down and is why women didn't gain rights for a very long time. I think both arguments are very interesting and I can't really weigh in and say which one is right since that's not my field, but I recommend people jump into that if they're so inclined because there is a, a lot of good material there, a lot of good stuff I had to read for comps. Yeah, it seems as though the move from l'ancien régime to post-revolution really has changed the maybe the role or the you know the thought about women but yet has it changed for the better that's a I guess that's a really good question that historians are asking yeah and there's a difference between the ideology and the lived reality because ideologically you can argue that this was a huge shift but for the lived realities of most women it was essentially just the same thing but it was justified by different means. And this is probably slightly out of your purview, but you mentioned that you're studying the British and the French history. Is this almost like a pre-suffrage? Like, was this almost like a, a movement towards the women's suffrage movements that came much, much later? Um, well, I wouldn't conflate the British experience with this because they had a significantly different experience and in fact the anglo-saxon world got the vote far before the francophone world in fact um well just for those uh who don't know britain women over 30 got the right to vote in 1918 specifically the law said women over 30 because there was a generation of young men who died in world war one and the British government didn't want women to dominate the vote. And so they required that only women over 30, but they got the vote in 1918. Whereas in France, women got the vote in 1945. So there was a huge difference. And one major difference in the British and the French experience essentially came after the French Revolution which was the rise of socialism and the rise of socialistic ideas. Essentially, in France, socialism as an idea became pretty popular in the 19th century, and socialists argued for a leveling of society based on the economic issue. In Britain, socialism didn't catch on as much. And so people were much more focused on political rights than they were economic rights. And for that reason, in France, there were quite a number of 
female activists who were focused on achieving socialism rather than women's rights, and even a lot of women who believed that women should have equality or at least far more rights, they weren't fighting for it within the government because essentially they argued that any capitalist bourgeois system that offered political rights wouldn't ever truly be equal. And so it was only with a socialist revolution that political rights could actually have some meaning. And so for that reason, the women's suffrage movement was far weaker in France, but the socialist movement was stronger. So that's a big reason why uh, France didn't develop it. So I wouldn't quite trace the um, suffrage movement of later years to the French Revolution. I think that obviously the French Revolution is going to have ripple effects all throughout French history. It's arguable that it still does. It's often said that the Ancien Regime has no beginning but an end, but the French Revolution has a beginning but no end. So I think you can see some sort of thread with the French Revolution even to the present, but there are a lot of very important differences that occurred that affected the feminist movement, notably socialism in France. Thank you so much for answering all these random questions that I had. I mean, I read briefly on this topic, but obviously you are definitely the person to talk to if ever I have more questions. So thanks for wrapping that all up in a package for us. Happy to be on the podcast. And also, um, you had a crazy but true fun fact that you had shared with me. So I, if you will, would you share it with everybody else? One fun fact about me is that I am a writer and my debut novel, The Maiden Voyage of New York City, came out this May. So if you want something to read while we're still recovering from the pandemic, you can uh, check it out. Perfect. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll look it up to see what it's about. Excellent. And I also had one last question. So if you had a time machine, where would you go or who would you want to meet? Of course, you're safe. You can come back safely. You're not going to catch, uh, you know, some weird disease or anything. Would you? Would it be an event, a person, uh, or do you just want to be like a fly on the wall during certain things? We can only go backward. We can't go forward because I think it'd be more fun to go forward. But, um, okay, if I have to go backward... Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe check out the the old world wonders because it's um I really like the ancient world and just knowing that six of the seven world wonders are no longer with us. Of course, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, the Statue of Zeus, Temple of Artemis, Hanging Gardens of Babylon and I think there was one more that I'm missing, but all of those gone from history, the wonders are dust in the wind now. The only one that's left is the Egyptian pyramids, which themselves would be interesting to visit when they were first made because they were white limestone with a gold top. So being able to go back and see those stuff, that would be uh, pretty fantastic. That would be a, a great way to spend my vacation and get some Instagram photos. 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess you need a time machine that can jump around uh, geographical locations too. Yeah, like a TARDIS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gary, for being on the podcast. I mean, this was a great topic and I'm happy you're able to just share everything about it so far. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Gary. That was a really good look at women during the French Revolution. The book recommendation by Gary today is Women and the Public Sphere by Joan Landis. Gary also gave a whole bibliography of books, which I will put into the blog post. And I'd also like to recommend The Maiden Voyage of New York City by Gary Chiroux, which I'll also link. You can catch me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at HistoryA. You can also come to the website, historyaid.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have time to rate this podcast on your podcasting platform, it'd be fantastic. It helps people find me, and I really appreciate all your efforts. I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends, the teachers I've had. Without you, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.